Thanks be to, the, to God for the reading and the hearing of this God's word for us. Grace and peace in Christ to all of you this morning. It is a special delight for me to join all of you on Anabaptist World Fellowship Sunday. And it is my hope that this morning's scripture selection as well as this message might reflect something of our global family of faith's long tradition of careful attention to scripture, especially the Sermon on the Mount, and of a radical commitment to love, serve, and follow Christ in life. It's also my hope that this makes some connection to Martin Luther King Jr., whose life we commemorate this weekend and tomorrow, who preached a famous sermon entitled Love Your Enemies on this very passage in 1957, in which he referred to Jesus teaching an example as an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way, a reminder that recent events seem to indicate we continue to be in need of today. Non-retaliation, love of enemy, refusing the sword. This is the teaching and conviction of our church This is our historic understanding for which at times we have even suffered. This is an understanding and more importantly a way of life that was the norm for the first generations of the church and has found expression in various ways throughout the entirety of Christian history. And there are many committed Christians who see much differently than I do, than we do. We are blessed to have veterans and members of our con- as members of our congregations and as students of our colleges. And many of our neighbors and friends in our communities are deeply committed to Jesus and do not share our church's peace convictions. And I'm grateful that Dale Schrag reminded us at Bethel College year in and year out to hold our convictions with open hands rather than with closed fists. Well, this morning's reading from the Sermon on the Mount contains two related teachings, one about retaliation and another about love of enemies. And there are a couple of interesting and kind of confusing twists and turns in these two passages that I often invite my students at the very beginning of our Intro to Biblical Studies class to ponder as we work through issues of translating the scriptures into English. Jesus begins, as he often does, by quoting a traditional teaching. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this particular quotation comes from the Hebrew Bible, from the Torah. It's found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And indeed, it appears throughout the ancient Near East known as the law of retaliation. This law, it appears, was given as a concession to the human desire for violence or vengeance, and yet it was meant to limit violence. So if your neighbor were to burn you on the arm, you could burn your neighbor on the arm, but you couldn't also punch your neighbor in the nose. It was supposed to stop there. And Jesus, in his sermon, takes this trajectory of limiting violence and adds his own transforming initiatives because we know that whenever one punch is thrown and another punch is thrown, 
Whenever one shot is fired and another shot is fired, it rarely stops there. We know these cycles of violence that we get caught in, whether it's physical or emotional, that we get trapped in these processes and trapped in downward spirals using violence. Jesus diagnoses this problem of violence and he says, but I say to you not to resist an evildoer or not to resist evil. Now I hope that raises some questions for us because we know that Jesus resisted evil. Jesus casted out demons. Jesus confronted those who were distorting religion and excluding others from God's holy sanctuary. Jesus confronted those who were oppressing the weak and the powerless. And he called his followers to do the same. We know that Jesus' followers came after him in his own footsteps in casting out demons and loving their enemies in confronting the powerful with the love of God. And we know from Romans that the early Christians were instructed not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. We are indeed to resist. And so a closer look is in order. The word for resist, which means to stand against, it has military connotations indicating what happens when an army gathers for battle to stand against an opposing army. And in Jesus' day, there were many soldiers stationed throughout his land, and his people were grating under Roman occupation, desiring to cast them out, to stand against them violently. As indeed happened in the year 66, a rebellion that was ultimately violently and horribly crushed by Rome. We also know that Jesus knew those stories of his people's own history, a history of his land that saw nations and empires and armies marching to and from across the land, leaving destruction and death and suffering in their wake. Jesus knew what armed resistance looks like and the spirals in which we get trapped. And so Jesus said not to resist violently. By evil means, another perfectly good translation. Now there's more to it than that also, for we are to resist evil. Indeed, Paul said not to, become, not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good, not to resort to evil means, not to respond to hatred in kind, but instead to overcome evil with good. And Jesus showed his followers what it looks like to overcome evil with good, offering transforming initiatives. And this year in, in our Basic Issues of Faith and Life class, our seniors are reading Walter Wink's book, uh, The Powers That Be, and encountering Wink's, Wink's own interpretation of this passage, in which he reminds people that when Jesus says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, to turn also the other, he's doing anything but commanding doormat discipleship. In fact, in Jesus' day, much like our own, there were many systems and structures of power and oppression, landowners and workers, masters and slaves, husbands and wives. And this may be familiar, but it was customary to assert domination with a backhand slap to the right cheek. 
And you can imagine how there were peasants gathered to hear Jesus preach his message who were grating under such oppression and abuses, and they were wanting to stand up, to stand against, to resist violently by evil means. But Jesus says to his followers to turn the other cheek also. Now, if one turns the other cheek, the aggressor has a choice to make, to strike with the forehand, treating one as an equal, or to use the left, which is considered unclean. Jesus has offered for his followers practices that unmask evil for the uncleanliness that it is, that respond to evil without resorting to violence, that claim the dignity of the human person. So also with giving the cloak, going the extra mile, and giving to all who ask. The teaching reaches its climax in the next section when Jesus says that you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, oftentimes when we read that, we get discouraged. Be perfect. Well, who can possibly be perfect like God? And we might even be tempted to throw up our hands and give up and throw away the rest of the sermon as well as high-minded ideals. But what if Jesus really meant what he said and really does desire his followers to follow after his teachings? Well, it turns out, as my students get to engage with, that the word for perfect doesn't really mean mean without fault, but rather it means to be complete and all-inclusive, a word that describes who Jesus has just said that God is. For it is God who sends the sun on the good and on the evil, and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. It is God whose loving embrace knows no boundaries, or as John's gospel put it, for God so loved the world that God sent the only Son. Jesus says to imitate God's all-inclusive, complete, perfect love. Not love just for those who love us back but also for those who are different from us, especially a love even for enemies. For this is the grace that we have received. This is the love that we have received from God, poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and that we are to share with all people. And this, friends, is a ministry and a message that has been entrusted to us. We need to continue to learn to proclaim the gospel of peace and peacemaking in ways that honor and respect and welcome differing opinions. The gospel of peace is not something to close ourselves in and shut others out, not something to make us feel more spiritual or morally superior, not something with which we criticize or belittle as sometimes we have. But rather, this is profoundly good news to hold with open hands as an invitation to come and follow. The gospel can't be presented with closed fists. When my brothers and I were growing up, we often heard stories from my mom about her own growing up years living in a very small town in northern Kansas. 
And my mom's family was the only pacifist family in this community. They had many, many wonderful neighbors. But sometimes life was also difficult, especially during the Vietnam War. And at one point when she was in high school, my mom was asked to play taps for a Memorial Day service, which in this community was a very patriotic rehearsal of military pageantry. And she agonized over this invitation and prayed. And she decided to do it as a sign of love and respect. So she went and she played to share her love, to open herself to her neighbors, to demonstrate respect for their convictions and to honor their sacrifices. Some years later, my mom's older brother served with Mennonite Central Committee in Vietnam, and he stayed behind after Saigon fell. And when he came back in 1976, this community asked him to come and speak in their little church, the same church that paraded guns and flags down the center aisle every 4th of July. And so he spoke, and he shared from his heart his convictions and his experiences, and also held his audience's experiences and convictions in the highest regard. And something amazing happened. After he was done speaking and began to sit down, the son of the president of the American Legion stood up and led the audience in a standing ovation, sharing the gospel of peace with open hands and embodying this good news from our hearts. Not to push others off, but as good news joyfulness that touches us to the very core of our being. In our Anabaptist tradition, we're called to proclaim this gospel in ways that are rooted and grounded in Scripture and in Christ, to study our sacred texts, to let them become a part of us, to challenge us and to transform us and our imaginations. And especially on this Martin Luther King weekend, we are reminded that we need to proclaim a full gospel of peace, not just a Jesus who teaches love of enemies and dies for them, but also a Jesus who overturns the tables of injustice. We need a pacifism that doesn't passively perpetuate cycles of oppression, but actively stands in solidarity with the marginalized to upend cycles and systems of injustice. And we need an activism that never loses sight of that most basic command, love your enemies. In the heart of the tension between an activism that is not antagonistic and a pacifism that is not passive is where the gospel is found. And it looks like a cross and a resurrection. Some 60 years ago this year, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at Bethel College and called his audience to be maladjusted to the patterns of this world and to be maladjusted without being malicious. We proclaim the gospel of peace in ways that are rooted and grounded in the teachings of Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in the hope that we have in Christ, who lives within us and in whom we live. 
And in our Anabaptist family and our historic understandings, we aren't a people of peace just because we think it's a good social theory, though we know nonviolent movements are generally more successful. We aren't a people of peace only because we think war is tragic or because we think capital punishment is barbaric. We're a people of peace because we've made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. We're a people of peace because we've decided that we want to follow Jesus in life and in death and in the life to come together. We're a people of peace because we believe that for us, there is no greater revelation of Almighty God's character and will than Jesus Christ, and we submit ourselves to follow after him who gave of himself in costly and courageous love, and God has already made peace with us. We are a people of peace because we believe in our hearts that God has raised Christ from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we have declared our allegiance to him by being baptized upon that confession of our faith. This is why we are a people of God's peace. We love our enemies because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And just as God is all-complete and all-inclusive in loving the whole world, including the just and the unjust, so also are we invited to be. We are a people of peace because we love and we follow Jesus, who taught us to love our enemies because he is our Lord and because we are to have the same mind that he had. In order to proclaim this gospel of peace, we don't have to earn advanced degrees in theology or biblical studies. The best proclamations are the simplest, and the best proclamation is our life. As we embody God's peace, Jesus' way of peace in all aspects of our lives, in our homes, with our friends, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our public interactions— We embody the gospel of peace as we confront domestic abuse and child abuse and all forms of horrific violence to break silence, to bring healing and hope to those who need it. If we can't be witnesses and agents of peace in our personal lives and at school and at work, how can we be a witness for peace before a watching world? What wounds of body or spirit do you carry today? How have you been treated as though your personhood, your status as a child of God, were diminished? In Christ's name, may you be freed of your burden. May you know your infinite worth and importance in God's eyes. And may you know that you are capable of love and worthy of love. We know that love is as much about action as affection, and if all that you can do is to pray for the strength not to retaliate, that is enough. Let God know how much you hurt and how angry you are, and pray for your enemies, as Jesus did, and do good. Overcome evil with good, as Jesus taught and as Paul repeated, rather than breeding more hatred and evil, 
This is how God wins the victory. And in the profound paradox of Christian faith, this is the expression of God's wrath against evil. This doesn't mean to let evil win or to let it go unrestrained. Rather, it is precisely how not only to denounce evil, but also how to overcome it. Martin Luther King taught that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with the good. We denounce evil when we refuse to respond in kind, but rather with good. We denounce evil every time we forgive because forgiveness requires an acknowledgement, a naming, an addressing of the harm that has been done. There is no greater gift than love, and it is only love that can disarm the power of hatred and pain and anger and fear. And more than just disarming, love brings healing and transformation. Love breaks, hates cycles, declares God's judgment, and ushers in God's future. We know this to be true because God has loved us. Because while we were yet enemies, God revealed, and as Paul put it, God proved God's own love for us in the self-emptying and death of Jesus, which Martin Luther King once wonderfully described as the telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. And that love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. When we love our enemies, we are confronting them with nothing less than the very love of God. And that love is powerful. Loving our enemies does not mean that we permit them to persist undisturbed in their injustice, but rather that we are attempting to restrain, to change them into a child of God with nothing less than the very love of God, which has been poured into our hearts. Loving our enemies denounces evil and prophetically announces the approaching sovereignty of God. We are to resist evil but not with the means and the weapons of this world. Or as Ephesians puts it, our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the tools that we need to resist are not the tools that the world uses. Instead, buckle yourselves with the belt of truth, For your protection, put on the breastplate of righteousness and take the shield of faith and put on the helmet of salvation and take in your hand the only sword that you will ever need in this world, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Put on your feet whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. That is how we confront evil in this world, by proclaiming the gospel of peace, by wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, by following Jesus and empty and embodying God's character and loving our enemies with that same love that has been poured out into our hearts. Then we will be complete, just as God in heaven is complete. May we be faithful witnesses to this vision of peace in all our life. And may we proclaim and share with open hands.
God's vision for a future of peace and invite others into that goodness. Amen. May it be so.